you all doing? Good. Happy Easter. All right. Hey, I'm going to um, share some a few things from the Word today. We can uh, turn to John chapter 1. As I was getting ready for my sermon, I ran across um, an interesting thing. Back in the Middle Ages, they had something called the Rhesus Pascalis, which is just Latin for uh, the laughing of Easter or the laughing of Passover. And um, what the tradition was, it was kind of twofold. Um, on Easter or um, the Sunday after Easter, um, people at dinner would sit around and um, just tell jokes to one another. And, um, and then the pastor on, on Sunday for his sermon or uh, for the week following would just tell jokes the entire time instead of doing a sermon. Uh, the idea being that Jesus had the last laugh, right? That was, that was really the idea. And since you guys love my humor so much, <laughs> in keeping with ancient tradition, <laughs> that's the only one I'll do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, I know who you are who said that. <laughs> and I'm up here. <laughs> okay, hey, what I would like to do is to look at the connection today with the Old Testament and the New Testament in regards to Easter. And when it comes to Easter, you know, we have the chocolate, the bunnies, the eggs, the candy, and all that stuff. Um, those things were added later on, by the way. If we're not careful, though, they can take away from the meaning of Easter, right? So, I want to make sure we understand the real Easter. And to do that, to properly do it, we need to understand um, who Jesus was. Because, yes, he was a wise teacher. Yes, he was a, um, a sage, a miracle worker, an example, many, many things. But when it comes to Easter, there is one image that should stick out for all of us, and that is the image of a lamb. Jesus is the Lamb of God. So if you're in John, we're going to start in the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now the book of John is quite different than the other three Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, right? And there's a lot of overlap with the different stories. But when you get to John, John takes a unique approach, and he reveals certain things about Jesus. He gives us, each of the Gospels gives us kind of a different snapshot and wants to emphasize certain things. But one of the things you see in the Gospel of John is the emphasis on intimacy with Christ. That he is not just our Lord and Savior, not just our Master, but he is someone who we can have fellowship with. And John just... He kind of spills it at the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then he gives us even more detail in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We, found out, we find out even more what this Word was doing. He pre-existed before the beginning of time. Then God sends him into the world. He takes on flesh and is born a babe. Then steps John the Baptist on the scene. Now, we're reading from the Gospel of John. That's from the Apostle John. But I'm going to be talking quite a bit about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner 
if you will, to Jesus. And we're going to read in John 1, 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, it's interesting. All the, ver- all the versions that I looked at said the word confess twice. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. He wanted to make it absolutely clear he was not the Christ. He was not the Christ. So what or who was John? He was to prepare the way for the Christ to come. He was the forerunner. So we keep reading, and what does John tell us? They said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer, in verse 22, to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So John's preparing the way. And what happens? Jesus shows up. It is his time for his public ministry to begin, around the age of 30 or so. Verse 29, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. Why would he use that term? What does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb? Well, to understand this, we have to look at the Old Testament. And we have to understand what Passover is in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the lamb was used in some of Israel's sacrifices. Specifically, it was used with what's called the Passover. And the Passover is when Moses goes to Egypt, right? Over and over again, he's appealing to Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go, right? Plague after plague after plague comes upon them. There's the last plague. And the plague was this, that the firstborn male of both human and animal, would die. Unless the blood of a lamb was put around the doorposts of a house. So, if you took the lamb and you slaughtered it, and you you put the blood around the doorpost, then God says, when I come that night, I will pass over your house and not visit my wrath upon that house. So what happens? All the Israelites obey and do that. None of the Egyptians do. And so the firstborn male of all the Egyptians and their beasts all die. What did this lamb have to be? Look at Exodus. Keep your finger in John because we're going to be coming back there. But look at Exodus chapter 12. So he's giving them instructions here. He says in verse 5 of Exodus 12, Your lamb will be without blemish. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then it goes on in verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments 
I am the Lord. So they were supposed to do this, not just this time, but every year they were supposed to do this as a remembrance. And it says in verse 26 of chapter 12, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. They were supposed to do this every year as a remembrance. So John the Baptist is telling us why Jesus was sent. He says to take away the sin of the world. To take it away. Christ, we find out, is our Passover lamb. His blood was spilled for you. His blood was shed for you. He was sacrificed so that you could live. That remembrance that the Israelites did for thousands of years was to prepare them to receive the real Passover lamb. It was pointing to Christ. Year after year, your entire life, you would celebrate this. Slay the lamb. Eat it. Every year, you would have a service. We see... Paul making mention of this in 1 Corinthians 5. Turn there, if you will. Paul is dealing here with uh, sin in the church. And he says in 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What's he saying? He's, he's telling them to clean up their act. There's sin in your midst, right? So he uses this illustration of bread with the leaven. And what happens with leaven, if you've ever made bread before, it works its way through the loaf, right, so that it can rise. He's like, you need to get rid of that. Why? What is he grounded in? Because Christ has been sacrificed. You don't have to live the old life. You can live for Christ now. If you trust in Christ, you're washed clean. That leaven is gone. Don't act like it's there. Don't live in that leaven. Your sin is taken care of. So act like it. Live like it. Turn to God and live for him. Individually here, the idea is not cleanse yourselves. If that's what Paul wanted to say, that's what he would have said. And he didn't. It would be a really easy word for him to use. But the idea is more this. Be cleansed. Because Christ is the one who cleanses you. He cleanses you. He is the one that takes your sin and deals with it. 1 Peter makes mention of this as well. Look at 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1 and verse 17. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ was the perfect lamb. He was without spot or blemish. He took away our sin. What did the lamb do to take away the sin of the world? I mean, you might have a perfect lamb if you're an Israelite, it didn't do you any good just to take the lamb and put it outside on the porch. You had to do something with it. You had to slaughter it. 
death had to occur because of sin. God requires life. He requires life. He really requires death. He requires your life because of your sin. But Christ takes the place. The great substitution. He takes your place. So John the Baptist knows he's to prepare the way for, for Jesus. What does he do? Well, what would you do? Now, some of you maybe are entertaining today. It's Easter. Well, um, I mean, you'd get your house ready, hopefully, if that's where they're coming to, right? You'd probably spend some good time doing that. More time than you'd like to. But you've prepared. You'd spend a lot of time preparing the house, getting it ready, cleaning. This is, this is kind of a big deal. Well, what about Christ coming? That's a pretty big deal, right? So John's supposed to prepare. Well, what would we do today? Well, we'd, we'd probably want to promote this coming, right? Think of boxing. Now, when they have that the heavy... I'm not really into boxing, but um, I'll at least keep tabs on it a little bit. It pops up in my little sports feed. Um, they don't fight for the title um, like once a month or maybe even every year, right? So when it happens, it's, it's a pretty big thing. And they promote it pretty well. Now, there's one promoter that um, is probably like the promoter of promoters in the boxing world for many, many, many years. Do you guys know who that was? Don King, right? He got the, the hair going on, right? Yeah? He was the promoter of promoters. What was he known for besides his hair? <laughs> I mean, he promoted the rumble in the jungle, the thriller in Manila. He promoted all the well-known boxers from the last 40 to 50 years, Mike Tyson, George Foreman, Muhammad Ali, Evander Holyfield, all those guys he promoted. And what did he do? His job was to promote the event and the boxers, right? Now, Don did a good job of promoting himself, too, sometimes. But he was supposed to promote the event and the boxers, get people hyped up about it. Point to them. Point to the boxers. What was John the Baptist doing? Point people to Jesus. Point people to Jesus. Look, John the Baptist stood to lose a lot by promoting Jesus. You think about that? I mean, John was the new happening thing. He was attracting quite the crowd, baptizing people left and right. And you know, it's one thing to attract a crowd when you're in like L.A. where there's like millions of people, right? But you're in the middle of the desert you attract a crowd, you're pretty good. All right? Let's take one of these megachurch pastors, you know. Let's put them out in the middle of the desert and see how many people come and hear them, right? He's in the middle of the desert, and he had a crowd. Listen, 400 years from the last book in the Old Testament until John comes. It's called the period of silence. 400 years God had not sent a prophet to the people of Israel. 400 years. Our nation's not even close to 400 years old. 400 years. But what's John's focus? Point people to Jesus. Look back in John. It says in verse 35, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. I mean, he just lost two disciples right there. Boom. 
gone. Did it bother John? No. Why? Because he was about the business of pointing people to Jesus. He wasn't concerned about his own fame or popularity. He wasn't concerned about people knowing the truth. He was, excuse me, he was concerned about people knowing the truth. When it comes to Jesus, all else needs to fall to the wayside. And it needs to be about him, not about us. He says this great thing in the third chapter, if you turn over there. In verse 25, it says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, they're talking about Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. They're basically like, hey, you know what? We kind of signed on for this thing and you were going, going good for a while, but we're kind of losing popularity. That's not cool. What does he say to them? A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John was the friend of the bridegroom. He was the friend. He wasn't the bridegroom himself. And then he says what I consider one of the most profound statements in the New Testament. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you can make that the little saying for your life, Jesus must increase, I must decrease, and you live it out, God will be greatly glorified in your life. Let me say a little more. Some of us could use a little bit less of us and a little bit more of Christ. It is not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. And we need to live like it. When people see you, they need to see you living for Christ. That's what they need to see. Christianity is not about self-promotion. Listen, your life is not your own. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, you were bought at a price. You were bought. Someone owns you. Guess what? One of two people is going to own you. Satan or Jesus. You decide. You decide. I'm going to choose Jesus. Right? Because... It says, his burden is light. His yoke is easy to bear. I choose Jesus. God bought you and redeemed you with the blood of his own son. And here is John the Baptist pointing the way to Jesus. You know what the religious leaders did? You know how they treated this lamb? They scourged him. They flogged this lamb. Look at John chapter 19. In John 19, after he appears before Pilate, after he's betrayed, it says in the first verse, very simply, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Your version might say, scourged him. So he leads the perfect life, and they torture him, because that's really what it was. This was no light beating. This wasn't taking him back to the woodshed or something. This was not some ordinary whipping. This was brutal, vile, and grotesque. Many people who were scourged 
they died from it. They didn't even make it to the cross. It was kind of like the preliminary thing that you had done to you before you were crucified. Okay, the, the, the Romans were not humanitarians by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, So they thought of the scourging, they thought of the, the crucifixion, um, and this wasn't just a handful of lashes. I mean, it really was, if you think about it, um, insane torture to the nth degree. There's nothing that compares to it. Um, so Jesus, here's the interesting thing. So Pilate hasn't announced the conviction of crucifixion on Jesus yet. So if you get that pronouncement, you're scourged, and then you're crucified. And Pilate actually acted illegally here. Because he scourged him before pronouncing the judgment. Now, he thought he was actually doing Jesus a favor. Gee, thanks, Pilate. Scourge me. Because he was trying to still get him off, off the hook. All right? That's why he takes him back before the people. But Pilate, in the legal sense had no right to scorch him until the judgment was passed. And the judgment was not yet passed by Pilate. So what was scourging or flogging? Um, basically, they would take the victim and they would you know, bind him to, to some type of post. And, and it wouldn't really be high. He'd probably be a little bit lower. So you'd be in a pretty uncomfortable position. Maybe in, enough, though, that you probably couldn't fully get, get on your knees and, and support yourself there. And then they would take rods um, and whips. And at the end of each of these whips, it would, it would, it would kind of like go out into pieces of leather. And at the end of each piece of leather would have like a metal ball or sharp bits of bone. And then they would proceed to beat you with everything that they could possibly muster in each swing. This wasn't just like 40 lashes. This was pretty much like almost to the death. Like I said, many people didn't even make it to the crucifixion because the scourging was so horrible. This is what happened to Jesus, the man who lived the perfect life. Now, if you witness this being done to your worst enemy, you might have a little compassion for him afterwards. Not the Jewish leaders. It wasn't enough. Pilate trying to probably think in some twisted way, logically thought, after they see what happens to him, there's no way they're going to want to proceed to crucifixion. He will have been humiliated, bloodied, in excruciating pain, and will probably never fully recover. Yet the Jewish leaders demand more. So what did Christ do? He spilt his blood for you. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, in the Old Testament, the blood sacrifice was part of Israel's daily life. Daily sacrifices would be made by the priests. And besides the Passover lamb that they would take each year, there was one sacrifice that only happened once a year. It was on the Day of Atonement. And only the high priests could make that sacrifice. And it was for the sins of all the people. The high priest, first what he would do is he would take the blood of bull. He would sacrifice a bull for himself to be even able by himself to enter into what was called the inner courts or the holy of holies. Your version might say the most holy place. 
the inner part of the tabernacle or the inner part of the temple. So first, just to enter himself, which he could only do once a year, he had to sacrifice a bull. And then he would also take a goat with him that he would sacrifice for the sins of the people. Look at Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, in verse 2, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Now, this mercy seat um, can kind of be misleading um, in English as it might give the idea of like a literal seat, right? Um, It's really just the covering uh, for the ark. It's like the lid. And we have a couple slides um, that we'll run through so you can kind of get an idea of what they think maybe the ark looked like based on the descriptions that we have in the Old Testament. So you can see on this one, you know, you had the cherubim facing each other and their, their wings would, were spread out uh, to touch one another and they were placed on top of the ark. Most of the images that, um, that we're going to run through here are going to look like that. They're going to be very similar with some slight modifications. So you have the mercy um, seat, the covering. It says, God is in the cloud over the mercy seat. Psalm 80, verse 1, says a very similar thing. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. That's the idea. You have the cherubim there, right? He's enthroned right above them. Psalm 99, verse 1, says the same thing. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. So the priest, the high priest, and only the high priest would go in there. And in verse 14 in Leviticus, if we pick it up, it says, He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Okay, this is for himself and for his his own personal household. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. So he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, on the cover. Do you know what was in the ark? The two tablets that Moses received. They were in the ark. And we have this this image here. Why? Because those tablets cried out against the Israelites, guilty, guilty, guilty. And here the blood in in the presence of God himself, a place that the priest and only one person could enter once a year, the very presence of God, blood is shed and poured over the law. Why? So that when God looked from his enthronement, 
he saw the blood sacrifice and would look over the sins of Israel. He would not hold it against them. The blood covered the transgressions. We see this beautiful description of Christ being our high priest and offering up his own blood for us. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews 9, it starts in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Which is unfortunate, because I wish he would have gone on to speak in quite some detail. But he didn't. Verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only, the high priest goes, and he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. If we read on, we look in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ did for us what we couldn't do. And it, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, God passed over those sins. It tells us at the end of chapter 9 that Christ only had to be sacrificed once. The bull, the goat, year after year after year. Christ's sacrifice once was sufficient to take care of all our sins forever. So he goes on, and you need to catch this. In verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Did you catch that? We can enter the Holy of Holies. What was once only given to Israel for one man to do once a year is now given to his children to do whenever they want. You can be in God's presence. You can enter the Holy of Holies. And how do you do it? Crawling on your knees in shame? No, it says with confidence. Your version might say with boldness. Why? Because Christ already did it all. You don't have to offer anything that has already been offered on your behalf. He has made the sacrifice for you. Will you take that sacrifice? That's the question. Will you do it? You know, there's different illustrations that I've heard over the years 
that try to put in, try to give a, a, a good picture of what God the Father and God the Son did um, in trying to relate the sacrifice and, and the decision that the Father had to make in sending his Son. They all, usually they go something like this, um, you know, there's, there's a drawbridge and, um, and, and there's the drawbridge operator. And he had just, you know, put it up because the boat's coming through and um, unscheduled the, um, a train is, is, is coming. He sees it. There's no way he's going to be able to get that down unless he stays at his post and makes sure everything goes back down. But as he looks in the distance, he sees his son playing on the tracks. And he's not going to have time to get his son off the tracks and put the drawbridge down for the train to go across. So he has to decide. And he decides, for the sake of all those people on the train, to sacrifice his son. There's something wrong with that, and here's what it is. Um, that illustration shows that the son really didn't play any part in the decision of the sacrifice. It was almost like, oh, right? The thing, the real illustration is this. God the Father and the Son covenanted together before the creation of time for Jesus to go. Jesus willingly went. He didn't have to go. He says, I could call down legions of angels right now to stop you. He could have done that. He didn't have to go to the cross. He went to the cross for you. He covenanted with the Father. He agreed before you were created. Before any of us were created. Before any of this was created, he did it for you. For you. That was the plan. It was not an accident. That was the plan. We see this in John 10. Jesus makes it very clear that it is his decision along with the Father's. He says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. That's us, by the way, the Gentiles. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. He lays it down that I may take it up again. If you want to claim to deity, it's right there. It's one thing to lay your life down. I guess we could all do that in some sense. I don't think any of you can take it back up again. I sure can't. He says, I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. So he went to the cross for us. You ever thought about the pain that Christ suffered on the cross? It's really not a pleasant thought. One of the things, I think a lot of times, and, and I thought this when I first got saved, um, and it's true, but we just think of the, the crucifixion itself as painful. True, right? So um, he was nailed to the cross. Wow, that man, he, he went that, for that through me, right? That's, wow, amazing, right? The crucifixion, the actual, you know, getting nails put through your hands and, and getting nails put through your legs, right? Hanging on a cross for hours. That was done for me. But there is so much more to it because he, you got to remember, 
What does he cry out to God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You want to know why God had to turn his back on his own son? Because of you. Because of me. Our sin was placed on Christ. And guess what? This fellowship that the Father and the Son had from the, before the beginning of time, this fellowship of purity, of righteousness, of holiness, at that moment was broken. It was broken. Why? Because God cannot have fellowship with sin. And the sin, God placed the sin, all of our sin, onto Christ himself. And God can't have fellowship with sin. And so, this awesome, perfect, pure fellowship relationship they had, Christ felt the absence of the entirety of that. It would be enough to drive any of us to cry that out. To have the Father pull his presence away. Not only that, though, to have... We've all messed up, right? Yeah? We've done some pretty stupid, bad, horrible things even. You ever do like one of those really bad ones and you just have this horrible feeling in you? Horrible feeling. Like you messed up. Imagine having to have all the guilt from your entire life up to this point for you to feel it all at once. Apart from Christ. Then imagine having to have all that guilt along with the person sitting next to you on your right and on your left and in front of you and behind you. And every person created, you bore their sins, their guilt. Okay, you talk about mental anguish, that is mental anguish. But we're still not done because he still has to be punished for those sins. God has to pour out his wrath. Why? Because you're the one that receives, deserves the wrath. I'm the one that reserved, deserves the wrath. But Jesus got it. For you guys and for me. Why would we take something like that so lightly? Why would we, why would we spit in his face and reject him and turn away from him? He bore it for us. He went through all those things. We could talk for hours and hours just on what Christ did on the cross for us and it would, it would, we would only begin to touch the surface. But he did that. That's how great his love for us is. God wanted his wrath abated. That's how God, great God's love for us is. That's why he sent his son to abate the wrath, to take care of it, to wipe the slate clean. And you have the opportunity to have the slate wiped clean. You have it right now. If you claim Christ as your own, if you trust in him, the word says, the slate is wiped clean. You have to trust him. You have to put your faith in him. This Jesus is the one who healed the lame. He gave sight to the blind. He fed the masses. He healed people of their infirmities. This Jesus, who taught at a level never before seen. People were just like, they've never seen a teaching like this, is what the word says. Who loved the unlovable, who cared for the careless. This Jesus, who drove out demons, stilled the wind and waves, and raised men from the dead. This Jesus, they murdered. They tortured. They scourged. They mocked. They reviled. They spit on. They crucified. This Jesus, 
who suffered a cruel death, who received the punishment of your sins and mine. This Jesus was put in a tomb, was there for three days, and on the third day, this Jesus rose physically from the grave. Victorious. This Jesus should be your Jesus. Make this Jesus your Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus to get you out of the stuff you're in, out of the sin you're in, out of the stupidity that you're in, to save you from your sin. Put your trust in Him. Look back at John 1. I want to show you something here. Now, the first part of John, the first 18 verses, it's like a prologue, kind of like an introduction. But I want you to look at verse 12 of chapter 1. It says, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Now listen to me here, folks. If you read the first 18 verses, and you should, if you read it, and I have, if I was trying to figure out what I thought was the key point that John was trying to emphasize, I would probably zero in on verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? Because that's pretty significant. Jesus, God himself, becoming flesh, living among us. But the way the Greek is constructed here, it's taking like a step up and then a step down approach. It is working towards something from verse 1. It's working towards something. But you want to know what it's working towards? What, it, what is like the climactic point that John wants to make in the prologue? It is verse 12. If you believe in Jesus, you are a child of God. That's what John wanted to emphasize. That's what he wanted to make sure his readers knew clearly without a doubt that salvation is through Jesus. If you believe in him, he gives the right to become a child of God. You are accepted into his kingdom. Colossians says that you're in the domain of darkness and he transfers you instantaneously in the kingdom of his son. That's the kingdom I want to be a part of. It's a kingdom you should want to be a part of. Listen, the Bible says that without Christ, you are blind and you cannot see the truth. You cannot see it. Second Corinthians 3 talks about it. It talks about the Jews having the blinders, the veil. It, it makes reference to Moses and the veil that he, wrote, he, he wore. And that they have their own veil that they can't see the glory of Christ. And maybe you have the veil. Maybe you're blind. you got to respond, though, to the blindness. Think about Paul, the Apostle Paul. What happened to him? He got knocked off his donkey on the road to Damascus, and God blinded him. But what was his response? Humility and repentance. Think about, in Genesis, uh, with the two angels at Sodom and Gomorrah, and with Lot, right? And... They're grabbed inside. They're in there. And, they're, and the men outside that are trying to get to them are struck with blindness. What is their response? Anger and madness. So people respond to blindness. You're going to respond to the fact that you're blind. What is your response going to be? Is it going to be like the Apostle Paul who humbled himself, who repented, who realized that he had been sinning against Jesus? Are you going to stay like the men in Sodom and continue to be angry and upset and vile and wicked? Because God can remove the blindness. 
That's what he does. He's in the business of removing the blindness and letting you see the truth clearly. The Israelites had to act on their belief, right? They slaughtered the lamb. They had to believe God for his word. They slaughtered the lamb. They spread the blood. Believe in Jesus, the word says, and you'll be saved. You have to live it out. You have to act on the belief. Walking it out. And that's available for each one of you if you put your trust in Christ. Because the story back in John, chapter 20, if you turn there, what happens? Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and it's empty. Then Peter shows up. John shows up. It's empty. They see the linen cloth lying there. The tomb is empty. It says in verse 9, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So they go back home. The tomb is empty. God has already risen. Christ from the dead. And they don't even know it. But Mary, what does she do? She stays there. The angels appear to her. And then Jesus is there. He says one word, or excuse me, a couple words in verse 15. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you speaking, seeking? She thinks he's the gardener. She says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani. She realized why Jesus revealed himself to her. And she saw Jesus for who he was. He says, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. So Mary goes and announces to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. You know what? No one disputes that the tomb is empty. Even the Jews, if you keep reading, says they made up this story that has lasted to this day, that the disciples stole the body, right? So even, even the people who were against Jesus and the disciples admitted the tomb was empty. It was empty. So why was it empty? Because Christ had risen from the grave. He had conquered death. All right? He was victorious. And it is... <clears throat> that's right. We can stand in that victory. We can stand in it. One more point I want to make. Think back to John 1. It says, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Have you ever reflected on why it's sin in the singular? Not sins. But sin. Because Christ did more than just take away our sins. He took away the power of sin. So it'd be one thing for God to save us and then leave us in our fallenness without any ability to really live for him. He could have done that. But he defeated sin. And he rendered it powerless in us. So if you're struggling with something, guess what? That, that sin is really powerless. Now, you might have 
empowered it. You might act like it's empowered. You might be slave to it. But you're really a slave to Christ. You can only be a slave to one thing. It's it's Christ, right? But sometimes we're, we re-enslave ourselves. It's like we put the, the chains on ourselves and, and hook us back up to the sin. And it's just like dragging us around. But John the Baptist tells us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin. He took what power sin had over us and destroyed it. Amen. That's why he rose victorious. Why? Sin was rendered powerless. Amen. He was victorious over it. That victory is for each one of us. We have the ability. It's an amazing thing that is not available to unbelievers. We have the ability to choose to not sin. Put positively, we have the ability to choose to live for God. We have that ability. Now, we might not act on that ability, sadly, but we have the ability. It is given to us to live for him. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're struggling with, in Christ, it can be overcome. Is it going to be an easy thing? Is it going to be a pretty picture? Probably not. Are you going to be in my office or David's? Probably. But praise the Lord, because we will help you walk through it. All right? We will help you conquer sin. We will help you walk in obedience. Praise God that we can live the Christian life in obedience and not disobedience. This life is available to each one of you. You have to put your trust in Christ. You have to believe he is who he says he is. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in this Easter day that we celebrate your son being risen from the dead. And just as we, we sung, there is no sting to death anymore. It's been taken away in the cross and through the grave. God, would you right now speak to people who don't know you in this room? Would you speak to them? Would you point out their sin to them? Show them their need for a Savior. Show them that your Son is the Savior. And reveal yourself to them right now. If you'd like to put your trust in Christ today for the first time, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Anybody here, raise your hand so I can see it. I want to pray for you. All right, I'm not seeing any hands. That's okay. God, you are gracious to save, and I do pray maybe someone is not ready to make that decision. Walk with them through that. You are mighty to save. You are a God that loves. Continue to pull on their heart. Continue to show them how much you love them, how much you care for them. Lord, save them. Whatever it takes, save them. And for us, God, who claim you, who trust you, who believe in you, God, we are empowered to live for you. Forgive, forgive us, forgive me for not walking in that so many times, Lord, for walking more in defeat than victory, God. But if any day is a day to be reminded of our victory, today is the day. Thank you, Lord, for the victory that we have in Christ, that sin has no mastery over us, that we are not a slave to sin. We are slaves to you, gladly and joyfully. Your burden is light. Your yoke is easy. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.